If you have your Bibles, open up to Proverbs chapter 27. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 21. It says, As water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects the man. Death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are the eyes of man. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but a man is tested by the praise he receives. As we continue our series this morning, Wise Up, I, I, wanna, I need to ask the question, have to ask the question, where have all the heroes gone? Where, where have all the heroes gone in our culture? This morning, I want to talk about becoming the hero of your own life. What does it mean to become the hero of your own, of your own story, being the hero of your own story? And I think Proverbs really shows us the way to do that. The book of Proverbs can show us the way, and this verse allows us to, to dig deep into it and see what God has for us. In our time together, I want to point out three characteristics, three characteristics of a hero that we find in Proverbs chapter 27, verses 19 through 21. And first, a hero is honest. A hero is honest, has an honest and authentic heart. We see that in verse 19. And one of my heroes is George Washington. Because he had humility. I read a lot on George Washington. He was a man of humility, a man of authenticity. That's why I, I, I so enjoy reading about this man. And I want to share one of my favorite stories. At the close of the Revolutionary War in America, a perilous moment in the life of the fledgling American Republic occurred as officers of the, of the Continental Army met in Newburgh, New York, to discuss grievances and consider a possible insurrection against the rule of Congress. They were angry over the failure of Congress to honor its promises to the Army regarding salary, bounties, and life pensions. The officers had heard from Philadelphia that the American government was going broke and that it had not, that was not going to meet its, uh, its, its compensation, their compensation needs at all. Some things never change, right? Um, on March 10, 1783, an anonymous letter was circulated among the officers of General Washington's main camp in Newburgh. It addressed those complaints and called for an unauthorized meeting of officers to be held the next day to consider possible military solutions to the problems of the civilian government and their financial woes. General Washington stopped the meeting from happening by forbidding his officers to meet at the unauthorized meeting. Instead, he suggested they meet a few days later on March 15th at the regular meeting of the officers. Meanwhile, another anonymous letter was being circulated, this time suggesting that Washington himself was sympathetic to the claims of the malcontent officers. And so on March 15, 1783, Washington's officers gathered in a church building in Newburgh, effectively holding the fate of America in their hands. Unexpectedly, George Washington himself showed up. He was not entirely welcomed by his men, but nevertheless, he personally addressed them. And as he went, as reading through this letter and, and addressing them and trying to, to get their, 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 his, their support, he was trying to get their support for the government, um, his speech didn't go off very well. It was not well received by his men. Washington took out a letter from a, a member of Congress explaining the financial difficulties of the government. His men were staring at him, just kind of blank and upset faces. After reading a portion of the letter with his eyes squinting at the small writing, Washington suddenly stopped. His officers stared at him, wondering. Washington then reached into his coat pocket and took out a pair of reading glasses. Few of them had known that he wore reading glasses and were surprised. This is what he said. Gentlemen, said Washington, 
You will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in service to my country. In that single moment of sheer vulnerability, Washington's men were deeply moved, even shamed, and many quickly came to tears, now looking at, uh, with great affection at this aging man who had led them through so much. Washington read the remainder of the letter and then left without saying another word, realizing their sentiments. His officers then cast a unanimous vote, essentially agreeing to the rule of Congress. Thus, the civil government, the civilian government, was preserved, and the experiment of democracy in America continued. See, I believe what made George Washington such an incredible man, such a great man, was that he had integrity, he had character, he was honest, he was, and he was vulnerable. He showed that vulnerability. If you read about the man's life, there, there's not much about pride throughout history when it comes to George Washington. He was, he, not a, I'm not saying simple-minded in, in, by any stretch. He's a very, very intelligent person. But he was a simple person. And he had that vulnerability. And he had the gift, as I read through his life, he had the gift of self-examination self-evaluation he was able to look at himself and to evaluate himself something i think we've lost in our culture see if we want to be the heroes of our own stories we need to look and we need to 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 critically evaluate our motives and our hearts we need to ask questions like you know why am i doing this ever thought about that as you go through a process in business or or with your friends or wherever did you ever stop and ask why why am i doing this What's the, what's the real reason that I'm doing what I'm doing? Evaluating our own lives. People don't take the time to critically evaluate themselves, to judge their own hearts, to look into their own motives and ask themselves, themselves tough questions. I don't think we do that very much. How often has someone said to you throughout your life, you know, and just lower your defenses for just a moment, have, have people brought the same thing to your attention over and over and over again? Says, so, you know, you, you're, you're kind of a critical person or you're, you're very controlling or you're, you're a little bit, and now, you know, maybe, maybe someone said it in a rude way so you don't want to receive it, but how often the same things keep coming up that people who even love you will try to point those things out? The problem is we don't step back sometimes and critically evaluate ourselves and say, you know, these are areas of my life that I, I really need to change. And when you do evaluate your own motives, when you look into your own heart, you, you may find out you're not as good or as noble as you thought you were. But that's not bad. That's really good. Because once you come to that conclusion, once you start to look into your own heart and realize that, you can begin to change. And become the person that God has created you to be. You can bring about that change. And you can become a better and more noble person. But until you actually recognize areas of your life that you need to change, you're not going to. Stop with the, this is the way God made me. And, you know, well, this is just business. Or this is just the way, blah, blah, blah. Stop with those little one-liners that kind of get you out of dealing with the issues in your own life. And deal with them. Whatever it is for you, I have mine. We all have different areas of our lives that we need to change. But once we recognize that, we can begin to change and become a more, a more honest and, more, and a more noble person. You know, and, you know, humility is not a bad thing. The person, the man or the woman who feels they're lacking is not lacking for long. 
Because they, they begin to recognize that. Self-evaluation is the beginning of self-improvement. When I can look at myself in the mirror and say, the reason I'm where I am today, the reason I'm not growing, is because I am not, I am not growing in this area. I haven't taken to heart what the Holy Spirit's been telling me in, in my own heart and what people have been telling me on the outside. And when I, when I do that self-evaluation, I begin to improve myself. My friends, until we know who we are, we can't become the person we should be. Until we recognize who we are, who we are now, we can't become the person that we need to be. And that's a healthy thing. And it's it really, we can, and you, people can tell you, and you can go here for this, and you can talk, but until you really look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what, Lord, you've, you've, you've put this on my heart for years and years, and these are areas I need to change, and I'm going to do that. Until you do that, you're not going to really see the change that you, you want. Self-evaluation brings new vision and action and grace to bear on the dark and negative side of our nature. We have a sinful nature. No surprise to anyone. But self-evaluation shines that light. It's like, you know, my wife talks about all the time when you're, when you're in, in a hotel room sometimes and you're staring in the mirror. I don't know what it is about the hotel mirrors, but they just show every blemish, don't they? It's like, you know, you just want to go in the bathroom and turn the light off when you go in those places. Because it's, it's, it's there it is. There you are, you know. Man, I didn't know. I, it's like those, those mirrors that are kind of warped or whatever. I didn't know I looked like that. We need, we need to do that evaluation, that self-evaluation. Because with it, we develop the kind of humility that will enable us to receive God's help. And that's what we need to change. We need to receive. We need to be in a position where we can receive God's help. And we'll find that if we change, we find just little by little, if we discard that old life that wasn't working anyway, anyway, we get a new life. We get that new life that can and will work for us. A life that we that, that where God can come in and be moving. You know, as a believer, as a new believer, it's like I wa- love watching new believers because they're like, man, I'll tell you what's going on inside. They're, they cry a lot. And, and I say it's because the Holy Spirit's in there kind of pitching things out. You know what I mean? They're just coming out. All these things are coming out. And as you grow in your faith, I think you go through that process and all of a sudden you're feeling, well, I'm, I'm pretty good now. And then all of a sudden you stop looking in that mirror and saying, God, show me, show me how I need, where I need to change. Because the new life that he gives us can and does work regardless of our circumstances. Second, a hero has a discipline. Something we are, we, are, we are really lacking in our world. Not just our country, in our world. A hero. If you want to be the hero of your own life, you have to have discipline. Verse 20, death and destruction are never satisfied and neither are the eyes of man. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, tell us that we need to take every thought captive. You ever, you've read that before, a lot of you. Take every thought captive. Take it captive. You see, our problem is that we don't control our thoughts. We don't control our thoughts. Whatever comes to mind, we're not controlling it. We're not taking it under the lordship of Christ. We're, we, we are not controlling our thoughts. We are not controlling our lusts for money, for power, for pleasure, for ease. There's nothing wrong with money as long as you use it for good. There's nothing wrong with power as long as you use it for good. There's nothing wrong with pleasure as long as you use it for good. There's nothing wrong with ease as long as it comes after service or labor. I'm not going to pick on any one group, but 
Some people really need to hear that. There's nothing wrong with ease. There's nothing wrong with relax. There's nothing wrong with taking it easy as long as it comes after service or labor. We need to realize these things. We need to understand that we need to take every thought captive. We need to take captive those things that will continue to destroy our lives. Remember, in a biblical worldview, it's either things are either sacred or sinful, right? Not sacred and secular. Either sacred or sinful. Discipline helps, you, helps your life stay sacred. Sin can only corrupt. This is interesting. We've talked about this before, but maybe some of you weren't here when we talked about it. You got, the, you got the sacred or the sinful. Sin can only corrupt. It cannot create. But what it tries to do is it tries to corrupt everything and usually does. God created everything good. And what sin does is come along and corrupts it. And that's why we have to be careful how we live our lives, that we take our thoughts captive, that we think through what we're doing and why we're doing it, that we're disciplined not only in our mind, but in our actions. That's why we need to take our pride captive. You know, we don't talk about pride in church. I was reading a book, um, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, and uh, the author said that, you know, in churches, pride is not discussed. We don't discuss pride because we don't want to, you know, there's a lot of people out there and that's one of the things we don't touch. And he says, as a matter of fact, uh, we, we, uh, we encourage the behavior by putting people in leadership who are that way. We put them on the elder board, whatever else, people who are arrogant and, and, and have, that, that have no control of their pride. We encourage it in the church. And I'm just I'm saying today we need to we need to take our pride captive Think about the most deadly sin. What was the first sin? Pride. What was the second one? Pride. Pride, pride, all the way through. Pride is what gets us in trouble. 1 Corinthians 8, 2 says, The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. I mean, look at Tiger Woods on the outside, okay? Golden boy. And I'm not, I love Tiger Woods. I am not, this is not a pound on Tiger Woods. I'm just making a point. But look at Tiger Woods before you found anything out about him. On the outside, he's a golden boy. But on the inside, his life was being corrupted. Over time, his life was being corrupted. I guarantee he wasn't taking his thoughts captive. And he destroyed his entire family. Because of a lack of discipline. Look at our, look at our, our public officials. Look at our, our politicians. Same lack of discipline. There's a lack of discipline in their lives. And with a lack of discipline, pride goes right along with that. Making mistakes, making errors, bad judgment, constant bad judgment. Because, of people, because people cannot, they don't have the discipline they don't think through what's, what's, what's good for the whole because of a lack of discipline. See, powerful and popular people often fall. They often fall because they begin to believe in their own greatness. You know, you get someone that you really like and you watch them rise to the top and you're thinking, oh, I really like that person. And as time goes on, something happens. People are patting them on the back and they begin to believe in their own greatness. Some people think they're above it all. They begin to think that it's never going to happen to me. I'm untouchable. And it can happen to anyone, okay? I'm not, it can happen to political leaders. It can happen to pastors. It can happen to business people. It happens to, 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 to famous athletes, to, to, uh, you know, to movie stars. They begin to think they're kind of above it all. They're, 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 more, they're untouchable. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says this, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment 
in accordance with the measure of the faith God has given you. See, at some point, these folks, whoever it is, whether it's a pastor or a politician whoever, you know, or, or an athlete, whoever it is, at some point, at some point in their lives, they make something other than God their master. And once they make that decision to put something else in place of God, it's just a matter of time before they fall. You see, the problem is without discipline, pride begins to control our thoughts. If we don't have discipline, if we don't have spiritual discipline, if we don't understand who we are in relation to God, and we start looking around and saying, who am I in relation to everyone else? Oh, I'm so much more spiritual than everyone else, and I know this much more than everyone else, or I'm so much more of a better, I'm a much better business person than everyone else, or I'm a better athlete than everyone else, and we, our mind starts soaking it in. Pride begins to control our thoughts, which leads me to my third point. A hero knows... I'll say who they are, and keeps themselves grounded. A hero knows who they are. If you want to be the hero of your own life story, we, we all have a story. God's going to tell a story through us. And if we want to be the hero of our own story, we need to make sure that we keep ourselves grounded. Grounded. Verse 21. This is really amazing. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold. But a man is tested by the praise he receives. A person is tested by the praise they receive. You want to be the hero of your own story. You need to, be, you need to avoid becoming arrogant from praise. You need to avoid becoming arrogant from praise. You, you, you guys in high school, junior high, you know you're a really great athlete, you're really good at something, and you're constantly being patted on the back, or someone's always whatever, or you know, you're doing well here in, in business, and so getting patted on the back, and you're moving up, and everybody, well, you're the greatest. You're, and, and the Bible says that we need to make sure that we're not becoming arrogant from praise. I used to work out with Anthony Munoz, can't you tell? And... Uh, <laughs> I remember once I have to tell a story. I got in his, his, his he has a huge his basement, man, filled with all kinds of cool equipment. And I got in there early, and uh, and I went over to the leg machine. And uh, I have huge, you can tell my huge legs. I, I went over to the leg machine, and there was like 400 pounds on this side and 400 pounds on that side, these big, huge plates. And I thought, I got on there, and I, you know, you sit down, you grab it, you're pushing. It was like pushing against the floor. I mean, I heard, you know, the, the clink, clink, clink. They rattled a little bit. I rattled, <laughs> I rattled the metal a little bit. And I got off and thought, well, he's just, he's just storing them there. You know how you store your weights? I've got to store them somewhere. And he, you know, he's storing them there, so he lay them on the floor. And then he comes in a little bit later, and he's like doing sets of like 80 on these things. I was like, time to go home, little boy. No. <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> it was funny. Uh, but Anthony used to quote, he loved to quote Proverbs 27 too. Proverbs 27 too, it says, Let another man praise you, not your own mouth, someone else, not your own lips. Let another praise you, not your own mouth. You know, don't praise yourself. Let someone else praise you. You know, it's so difficult for us sometimes that we've we got to be careful you know, Hall of Fame or not, we, we have to be careful to fight the urge to self-promote, to be tempted by flattery. And it doesn't matter what situation you're in. You know, I, and I, I say this and some people think, I never get flattered, I never get encouraged. I'm just, in this point, we need to be careful that we are not tempted by flattery. 
that we're not tempted by praise. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 12 says this, Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. I think it would help us if we could see our lives in perspective and understand what's really important. I think we could avoid some of these pitfalls, these, the, you know, the pride, the flattery, all this kind of thing, the temptation. I think we could avoid some of that if we understood, if we saw our lives in a greater perspective and we understood what was important, if we understood what had eternal value, it would, it would help us from being corrupted by praise. And that's what happens. We're corrupted. The world tells us, you know, if you're better or if you have more or if these people like you, whatever else, then you're, then you're better off than other people. You're, you're better than this person. You're, you're better than that person. And so here's what happens. We, we buy into this lie of the world that here's how you get, you know, here's how you become this or here's how you're going to be happier over here. We buy into what they're saying that more is better and this is better and that's better. And we start chasing after dust. We start chasing after fog. It's like you want to grab. It's like chasing a shadow, thinking somehow that's going to give you purpose and meaning in your life. See, true contentment doesn't come from the praise of, or wisdom of this world. Those things fade away. They fade away. To avoid the pride of praise, we need to make sure we understand where true contentment comes from. Where do we get true contentment in our lives? In Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, it tells us, I know what it is to be in need, Paul says, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I love that word, everything. I can do everything. Jesus Christ is life, not a part of your life, not something you do on Sundays. Jesus Christ is life. He's in your work when you go to work. He's in your work. He's, he's, in, your, he, he's in your parenting. He's in your relationships. He's in your service. He's in your sports. He's in your hobbies and activities. And he's in your choices. See, Jesus is reflected in the believer's life, in your life and in my life. Jesus Christ, that's where he's reflected. As we go out into a world, go into all the world and preach the gospel, part of the preaching the gospel is you do it with your mouth. Part of preaching the gospel is what you do with your life. And our lives reflect, and I'm being encouraging here, our lives as believers reflect Jesus Christ. I don't think we sometimes understand how important our lives are. You see, what the world tells us, and and the world lies to us, and so we believe that unless we've written a a, a book, a a number one best-selling book, or we've become the president of the company, or become rich and famous in this area or that, we're a failure. Somehow we failed if we haven't reached the pinnacle of this or the pinnacle of that. And that's just not true. It's not true. I mean, I, I think part of the reason that men go through a midlife crisis is right there. 
That's why men struggle in mid, mid, mid-life. They look at their lives and they, they look back and the whole world is telling them, if you haven't gotten to this place at this time, you're a failure. I read an article that women over 40 are more likely now to commit suicide. This is recent. They're being told constantly, this is what success looks like. You're being told that by folks who have no other hope except what they have right here in the flesh here on earth. Their idea of success, they're trying so desperately to push it on everyone else. That's what the world will tell you. And men are having a midlife crisis. Women are more, more likely to commit suicide. And the older I get, I'm going to tell you something, the more amused, if that's maybe not the right word, but uh, <laughs> I become watching people run around trying to look successful deluding themselves with self-importance. They live in a delusional world of self-importance. They they try to create something that makes them look this way or looks that way, trying to find their significance in what other people think. People who don't matter or don't care, matter to your life at all and really don't care. And you, you, you think to yourself, I'll show them. How many times you said that in your mind? No, you won't. They don't care. Those people did now. I'm going to show them. No, you no, you won't. Well, I'm going to rise to the top, and you're going to find out what everybody else finds out. There's there's nothing there. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to be remembered. No, you won't. Ecclesiastes chapter one verse eleven says, "There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow." Now, obviously, I'm talking about George Washington. He's a principal in here. You understand. But at a certain point in the history of the world, depends how long we go here. Because we all remember Richard, Richard B. Mellon, right? Y'all, yeah, raise your hand if you remember Richard B. Mellon. Come on, put him up. How could you not remember one of the richest Americans ever? Richard B. Mellon. You know, Richard. Good old Richie. <laughs> 1940s, Richard B. Mellon, he was the richest man in America ever. You don't remember Richard? I didn't either. I looked it up online. Um, <laughs> see, I believe that most of us will be remembered. I, I know. I don't, I don't think this is true. Remembered in two ways. Two ways. Number one, our deeds are held in the heart of Christ. We'll be remembered because our deeds are held in the heart of Jesus Christ. That means we will be remembered for what we do. What we do will be remembered because God will speak it into eternity. Christ holds all of what you do in his heart and God will speak it into eternity. It will never be forgotten. Well done, my good and faithful servant. When I was this, where I was done, I was hungry, gave me something. I was thirsty, gave me something to drink. Lord, when do we see you? Whatever you did for the least of these, it is etched on the heart of Jesus Christ and God will speak it in eternity. God will speak. You know, the first thing I learned, the, one of the very first things I learned as a Christian, I was in youth group in New York, and, and the youth group had like a choir. It was a big thing. And I actually, I was in a choir. I loved every minute of it in this choir. And it was a song that we, we sang. It was, only what's done for Christ will last, basically. Only one life, so soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. It is the first thing I learned. It is one of the most profound things I ever learned, and it is completely and utterly true. Second, our lives are etched. Here you go. Our lives are etched into the hearts of those we love, to the people that we've invested in. 
When word first got out that the music program was cut and about the retirement of my husband, well, I've never seen such a response from the community. Oh, looks like my watch is fast. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, may I present our governor and Kennedy High School alumnus, the most honorable Gertrude Lang. my tardiness, and uh, Principal Walters, I'd like you to know, yes, I brought a note from my mother. <laughs> Mr. Holland had a profound influence on my life, on a lot of lives, I know, and yet I get the feeling that he considers a great part of his own life misspent. Rumor had it he was always working on this symphony of his, and this was going to make him famous, rich. Probably both. But Mr. Holland isn't rich, and he isn't famous, at least not outside of our little town. So it might be easy for him to think himself a failure. And he would be wrong. Because I think he's achieved a success far beyond riches and fame. Look around you. There is not a life in this room that you have not touched. And each one of us is a better person because of you. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. We are the melodies and the notes of your opus. And we are the music of your life. to hear. If you will, would you please come up here and take this baton and lead us in the first performance ever of the American Symphony by Glenn Holland. If you would bow your heads with me. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord God, we want to be the heroes of our own stories. We want to live our lives in such a way that you are honored. And God, we know that a hero writes their opus on the pages of human hearts. God, I pray that would be the story of every person here that they would recognize, that they would truly recognize what you, how you have created them. And that those they have loved and those they have invested in, 
will tell their story in years to come. It isn't about power. It isn't about fame. It isn't about money. It's about using those things if we ever achieve them. It's about using the gifts that you have given us, every single one of us. Those who are known and those who are not well known. Using the gifts that you have given us to invest in the hearts and the lives of others. And in that way, we live on in their hearts and in the heart of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this morning. We pray, dear God, that you would continue to work in our lives, that you would help us, Lord, to apply what we've learned this morning, that we would take it to heart. And when we feel discouraged that the truth of what we've heard this morning will triumph over the lies that we're told day to day that discourage us and make us think like we're not think that we're not valuable. We have value in your eyes and we have value in the eyes of those that we love and invest our time, our treasures, and our talents in. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Have a great, great week.